Welcome to Unexplained Extra, with me, Richard McLean-Smith, where for the weeks in between episodes, we look at stories and ideas that for one reason or other, didn't make it into the previous show. In last week's episode, Slide Away, we journeyed into the so-called Bennington Triangle in the Green Mountains region of Vermont in the United States to hear the tragic story of 18-year-old Paula Jean Weldon, who disappeared around there in November 1946. The term Bennington Triangle was coined due to a spate of unexplained disappearances that occurred in the region between 1945 and 1950. Weldon was one of four who vanished without trace during this time. To make things a little more eerie, the third person to vanish after her, James Tedford, who was last seen on a bus heading to the town of Bennington in 1950, disappeared precisely three years to the day that Paula went missing. Further to this, there was in fact a fifth individual named Frieda Langer, who also disappeared in 1950. However, her body was eventually found a year later. Other reports of strange vanishings have also entered the narrative, including the tale of three men said to have mysteriously disappeared while out hunting near Glastonbury Mountain in 1948, and a 13-year-old boy named Melvin Hills, who went missing in 1942. As others have pointed out, the hunters in fact emerged safe and well the day after being declared missing, having been stranded on the mountain for just one night. As for Melvin Hills, or Hill even, he was eventually found riding his bicycle in Massachusetts a few weeks after his supposed disappearance. There are plenty of other stories, however, that successfully lend themselves to the triangle mystique, such as the report of a stagecoach that was apparently attacked by a huge and terrifying creature sometime in the 19th century, while en route between the towns of Woodford and Glastonbury. But perhaps the strangest and most mysterious story of all was that which took place in the early 1800s, which ultimately led to the first officially recorded case of the wrongful conviction for murder in the United States. But was it? The year was 1812 in the town of Manchester, one of the recent spate of towns alongside Bennington that had been established in the area by the colonial governor of New Hampshire, Bennington Wentworth. Like most European settlers who came to the area, the Bourne family were people of the land who'd worked hard to establish themselves as successful sheep and potato farmers. The job was very much a family business, with family patriarch Barney Bourne keen to involve both sons and daughters on the farm, at least until his daughters could be married off. Things became complicated, however, when his second oldest daughter, Sally, became involved with a local man named Russell Colvin. Described as a flighty drunk who struggled to hold down work, Colvin could not be relied on to support his wife, a situation that only became worse when the couple had children. In an effort to help, Barney is said to have offered the couple the opportunity to live rent-free on the farm, while also giving Colvin a job there for as long as he needed it. Needless to say, this did not go down well with Sally's brothers, 23-year-old Stephen and 19-year-old Jesse, both of whom had to pay their own way elsewhere. Added to the fact that both despised the way Colvin treated their sister, 
constantly walking out on her for months at a time without telling her where he was going. It was clear to many that trouble was steadily brewing. When Colvin disappeared suddenly, on May 10th, 1812, no one at first thought anything of it. After all, he'd done it countless times before. But when a few months turned to years, some began to wonder if the Bourne brothers might have had something to do with it. In 1815, Sally got pregnant again, this time to another man. The problem being that since she was still technically married to Russell, the other man had no legal requirement to provide any child support. But Sally wasn't to worry, according to her brother Stephen, allegedly telling her that her husband was long dead and had been put deep in the ground where the potatoes don't freeze. Whether there was any truth to this, however, or whether it was just talk, as Stephen later claimed, would take a few more years to come out. And it all started with a dream. It was sometime seven years after Russell Colvin's disappearance, in 1819, that his uncle Amos awoke in a cold sweat one morning, claiming to have been visited by his nephew in a dream. The visits occurred over a number of nights, during which Amos was apparently informed by Russell's ghost that not only had the Bourne brothers murdered him, but he could also lead Amos to the precise spot where they'd buried his body. Sure enough, after alerting the authorities, Amos led them out into the middle of one of the Bourne's fields, to the place he'd seen in his dream, an old cellar hole about four foot long, where a farm building had once stood. That morning, Russell's wife Sally watched expectantly as pile after pile of dirt was dug out of the hole, but no body materialised. Instead, they found only some crockery, a penknife, a jackknife, and a floral-shaped button within the dirt. But when Sally was called over to examine the pieces, she gasped in horror. The items all belonged to her husband, she claimed. It was only a few days later, when a devastating fire mysteriously broke out on the Bourne farm, destroying an entire sheep barn. One morning soon after, a young boy was walking his dog, when the dog became suddenly excited at the base of a tree stump, close to where the ruins of the barn were still smouldering. When the boy went over to investigate, he was horrified to find what looked like charred human bones protruding out of the ground. When a team of physicians later confirmed that the bones were indeed human, the Bourne brothers' fate was sealed. Clearly, on hearing about Amos's dream, they'd moved Russell's remains to the barn and set the whole thing on fire. When that hadn't destroyed them completely, they attempted to hide them elsewhere. By then, Stephen appeared to have fled the state, so only Jesse was arrested. Over the next few days, law enforcement officials tried unsuccessfully to extract a confession. Jesse's cellmate, Silas Merrill, however, claimed to have succeeded in doing the job for them, and in return for his release, he promised to tell them everything, to which the county agreed. According to Merrill, 
Jesse told him that it was Stephen who first attacked Russell, hitting him over the head with a wooden club. Their father Barney had then finished the job by slitting his throat after he heard the men fighting and came over to see what was happening. Confronted with this version of events, Jesse finally confessed to the crime. Perhaps hoping for a reduced sentence and that Stephen wouldn't be caught, however, he amended Merrill's story to say that Stephen had orchestrated everything and that their father had nothing to do with it. When Stephen was eventually arrested himself a few weeks later, Jesse recanted his confession, but the damage had already been done. What makes a murderer's mind tick? Killer Psyche is a true crime podcast from Wandry that explores these types of questions about the crimes that killers and criminals commit. Killer Psyche covers high-profile cases that shocked the world, and host Candice DeLong uses her five decades of experience as a clinical psychiatric nurse and FBI criminal profiler to dissect the motivations and behaviours of the most terrifying felons in history. And you'll definitely want to listen to a recent episode of Killer Psyche, where Candice looks into the mysterious murder of Ted Ammon, a wealthy Wall Street financier. Ted had been going through a divorce with his wife of 13 years, Jenna Rosa, and child custody and millions in assets were at stake. Jenna Rosa and her new boyfriend, Danny Pelosi, were the prime suspects, but Jenna Rosa died of cancer before police could prove her involvement. In 2004, Danny was convicted of second-degree murder, but still maintains his innocence. How does hatred drive a person to murder the father of their children? Listen to Killer Psyche on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen to One Week ad-free by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app. As it transpired, a second examination of the bones found by the tree stump concluded that they weren't human after all. However, owing to Jesse's confession, the Bourne brothers were promptly put on trial for murder. Stephen's constantly changing story didn't help either, after first stating that he and Jesse weren't even working the same farm when Russell disappeared, before saying they had in fact all had dinner together the night that Russell got up to leave the table and was never seen again. Multiple witnesses came forward to attest to the fractious relationship between the men, and when Russell's own son, Lewis, testified that he'd seen Stephen strike his father over the head with the club, the game was up. In the end, Stephen too confessed, claiming he'd merely acted in self-defence. It took the jury just over an hour to find both defendants guilty of murder. Although at first sentenced to hang, Jesse's sentence was eventually reduced to life imprisonment, but Stephen was not so lucky. He was sentenced to hang on January 28, 1820. As the ominous day drew nearer, Stephen, who despite his confession, maintained his innocence, attempted one last throw of the dice to prove it. And so it was that in November 1819, He instructed his lawyer to place an advert in the paper, asking anyone to come forward who might have seen Russell Colvin alive in the last seven years. Then incredibly, somebody replied. 
In a letter written to the New York Evening Post, who syndicated Stephen Bourne's plea, a man named Tabor Chadwick claimed that he was in the lobby of a hotel in New York when he overheard a group of men discussing the Bourne's case. Chadwick was writing because he believed the description of Russell Colvin in the advert matched the description of a man who was living in Dover, New Jersey, with his brother-in-law at the time. Chadwick's letter was published on December 6th, where it was in turn read by another man named James Welpley, who came forward as one of the men that Chadwick had apparently overheard, talking about the case in the hotel lobby. Welpley was originally from Manchester and was well aware of Russell Colvin. It was late in December when news reached Manchester that Welpley had not only managed to locate the man that Tabor Chadwick believed to be Russell Colvin, but that the man was in fact Russell Colvin. On December 22nd, only a month before Stephen Bourne's execution date, a stagecoach pulled up outside the Black Tavern in Manchester in front of a heavy and expectant crowd, from out of which stepped James Welpley and the apparent Russell Colvin, returning to Manchester after being assumed dead for seven years. It is said that Colvin recognised people in the crowd and even conversed with a number of them who all happily verified his identity. Colvin did, however, fail to recognise his own children when they stepped forward to greet him and when asked about his wife, stated simply that that was all over now. All of which was quickly washed over when a few minutes later, Stephen Bourne was presented to him with his hands and feet in chains. Colvin reportedly looked on confused and asked what on earth he was in chains for, to which Stephen replied frankly, because they say I murdered you. Colvin screwed up his face and made plain to all who were there that Stephen and his brother Jesse had done no such thing. Clearly, as most concluded, a terrible injustice had been meted out to the Bourne brothers. As a result, the pair were quickly retried and acquitted of all charges before finally being set free. As for the newly returned Russell Colvin, he remained in Manchester for little over a week before leaving again, never to return. And there, according to many, the story is said to end. According to Michael Dooling, however, writing in his 2011 book, Clueless in New England, it was some 40 years later when an undercover deputy US marshal attempting to infiltrate a gang of counterfeiters got talking to one of the gang who went by the name of Jesse Bourne. At some point, Bourne, who would have been in his late 50s by then, got to talking about past crimes, recalling with a slight twinkle in his eye the crazy time that he and his brother murdered their brother-in-law and got away with it by using an imposter to claim the man was still alive. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook 
featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.